Welcome to the RSP Cast Film and Theory. Adam Harstead, Matt Waldman joining you once again this week. We're going to talk about trading for picks in Dynasty as well as trade deadlines in Dynasty. What's the utility of them? And then we'll touch upon um, Trevor Lawrence and maybe what his value looks like moving forward and whether or not, you know, he's a problematic player for valuation and, and what that speaks to about valuation in both Dynasty and Redraft when it comes to the certain players of his type. So, Adam, where do you want to start? Like, you know, should we start about trading picks or should we talk, talk first about the deadline? Yeah, I think we could do those two in either order. Uh, I say let's do the deadline first because okay. if the deadline's there, the, the trades you should make are irrelevant anyway. Right. <laughs> so let's... So, so with that in mind, I mean, you wrote a you you wrote a great article in Dynasty and Theory about how, you know, we we need to talk about trade deadlines and whether there should be. So, what's your argument about this, and and where do you stand? So, I think the important thing to realize is that in Dynasty, in fantasy football, really in any competitive game, something that's played recreationally for fun, but also um, has a competitive aspect to it. There's really two layers um, at play. And the first layer is going to be the competitive layer. And the competitive layer is going to be zero sum. If I win a championship this year, that means you do not win a championship this year. If you get the number one overall pick, that means I do not get the number one overall pick. Even on a week-to-week -week basis, um, every time I win, my opponent loses. And um, in theory, we you could make non-zero sum competitive games and and like game theorists will come up with these as toy models and, and things like that. But for the most part, basically any sort of competitive endeavor you engage in is going to be zero sum and it's going to have that zero sum layer. Um, and you can't really optimize on that zero sum layer. Uh, like tanking, tanking is a great example. Like tanking is bad. You can't make an argument for why tanking is bad on that zero sum layer, you know, you say, well, if you tank, you're going to get the number one pick instead of me. Okay, but if I don't tank, you're going to get the number one pick instead of me. One of those arguments is not compelling than the other. No matter what, the number one pick is going to go to one team and not going to go to the 11 others. And on the zero sum layer, it doesn't really matter who that team is. It's gonna be someone, 11 people are gonna be mad and that's just how it is. There's no way around that. Um, and so you'll see some people try to make arguments for or against tanking on the zero sum layer where like, well, tanking is good for my team, so therefore I should be allowed to tank. Um, and that's, those arguments are never compelling to me. But in addition to that zero sum layer, um, there's this positive sum layer kind of over top. And that's where like, you can win and I can win in some respects. If I have fun playing you in fantasy football and you have fun playing me in fantasy football, then that's a win-win. I might win the game, I might lose the game, but we both have fun in the process. And you can make tweaks on that positive sum layer. You can make, if, if we do something that makes the game more fun for you and makes the game more fun for me, that's a positive sum change that, that makes it better for everyone involved. Um, and so I always try to focus my rules um, when I'm setting up leagues. I like to focus things on the positive sum layer. I'm not concerned so much with who gets the championship, who gets the pick. I'm concerned with what structures and what systems are going to produce the most total fun 
for everybody involved in the league. Because you can do that. And you've played in leagues that are not fun. You've played in leagues that are lots of fun. Yeah. Um, it might even be the exact same roles. It might even be the exact same participants. But, uh, you know, like maybe you've had a league where a trade went through and the league spent the next three weeks bickering about that trade. Should it have gone through? Should it have been vetoed? Should it have been like, that's a negative fun experience for everyone. So like a good league rule would be um, something that prevents that bickering from happening in the first place, whether it's some leagues might like trade vetoes. I hate trade vetoes. Um, but maybe that's what works for you. Maybe like if, if it's a family league, where you know you have this history with these people and like if stuff goes wrong you can't just like sever ties over a fantasy football league um and you're stuck with them forever like maybe it's worth it having some of these draconian rules just to keep the peace just to prevent thanksgiving from becoming unbearable for the next five years because you know grandma june traded um a kick, whatever yeah a kicker right. for a quarterback you know yeah DeAndre Hopkins for Kayshawn Butte in in their <laughs> dynasty league, which and, and and people were questioning whether Grandma June was still mentally competent enough to be playing, or whether her team needs to be put in trust. And so that can make sense. And the non-zero sum solutions are going to differ from league to league. But I I think it's really good to be intentional if you're a commissioner or if you're just someone who has this vested stake and you want to make sure that the league is healthy and fun for all involved to think about like what the goals of the league are at the non-zero sum level. Um, and so a common goal, like I, here are some common goals that I think everybody would generally agree with. It's generally more fun if you play in leagues where better teams win more often than worse teams. Um, it's generally more fun but also it's generally more fun if like there's still some uncertainty if you have a league where the best team wins every week that's not going to be fun to play in just simulate the rest of the season what's the point but having that any given sunday variance that's good where where the worst team could catch a lucky break and take down the best team and nobody ever feels safe to me that adds fun so i like head-to-head -head scoring because it 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 gives that variance and it's not the most fair, but it optimizes more for the, the make things exciting and stressful element. Um, but a common one is you want better teams to win more often. Um, and in Dynasty, um, I think one of the most important ones is you need bad teams to have a path back to relevance. Um, because if you have the worst team in the league and there's just no way to get back you know, if Dynasty Leagues awarded the number one overall pick, if that was a prize to be won, if the best team, the team that won the championship, also got the number one pick as a reward, that league would probably fold pretty quickly because it becomes this self-reinforcing advantage where the best teams keep getting better and better and better. And if you have the 11th or 12th best team, what's the motivation for you to stay in that league and try to gut it out when everything's working against you? So it's very common. Um, I think most Dynasty Leagues should have a goal where there is some sort of parity mechanism. There's headwinds against the strongest teams. There's tailwinds behind the weakest teams. The most common example of this is um, rookie picks being awarded worst to first. Um, and then when you're very explicit about that, that like the purpose of awarding rookie picks first, worst to first is to create this parity mechanism, then it becomes very clear why tanking is bad because tanking is a way to distort that and make it so some team other than the worst team winds up getting the first pick just because they were the first team to commit to the tank for the season. Um, so tanking isn't bad because it moves the first pick from David to Sarah. Tanking is bad because it moves the first pick from the team that needs it 
to the team that maybe doesn't need it as much. Um, so yeah, I like to look again at, at what are these, these important goals for the league and then do these rules serve those goals? Uh, and trade deadlines kind of came about because fantasy football is supposed to be like a um, simulacrum of the NFL. It's supposed to look like the NFL and the NFL has a trade deadline. So it makes sense that fantasy football would have a trade deadline. Um, and in redraft leagues, especially um, for competitive balance reasons, you don't necessarily want a two and 10 team making a trade in week 13 with a 10 and two team. Um, even if there's nothing improper about it, often the appearance of impropriety is just as bad as, as the actual presence of impropriety. Um, and so for the sake of avoiding those knockdown, drag out Thanksgiving arguments, it can make sense to, to set a deadline so that eliminated teams are no longer influencing the outcome of the season. So that teams that no longer have a stake in the outcome can no longer influence the outcome. Dynasty is a different beast because there's never a point where a team no longer has a stake in the outcome. Even if you don't have a stake in the outcome of 2023, you're still alive for 2024. No team has been eliminated for 2024 yet. And so it's important for teams to be able to make moves that, that they think will improve their chances over a timeline that they care about. Um, you know, a trade deadline is a constraint and it's saying you cannot do what you think is the best interest in your team and constraints can make sense. I, I would propose constraints on tanking. I don't think you should be able to do what's in the best interest of your team because it's not in the best interest of the league. But with trade deadlines, I, I don't think it has that compelling of an interest. Um, and, and one of the effects of removing the trade deadline is that it allows teams to compete longer in the season. If your trade deadline is after week 10 and you're sitting right now at you know, four and five after week nine, and you have Adam Thielen and um, Keenan Allen as your top two receivers, you can look at that team and be like, well, I think I can compete for a playoff spot. I'm one game out of the playoffs. I think if I make a push, I can make the playoffs. But if I try to make a push right now and I come up short, Keenan Allen and Adam Thielen both get a year older. My chances to trade them for fair value is gone. So maybe I'm not gonna risk it. Maybe I'm, even though I'm still in the playoff hunt, maybe I'm going to trade away some of my best players right now because the alternative is risking not getting good value for them in the future. And so you get more teams that are throwing in the towel on the season early, um, which is not really fun on the non-zero sum layer. It's not fun playing against a team that's basically a guaranteed win because they've traded away all their good players or they put their um, players on IR or they're cutting their older players. Um, it's not really fair if you want to see the best teams win. You know, if you and I are the top two teams in the league and I face a team early in the season when he has Allen and Thielen and you face him late in the season after he's traded them away, you're more likely to get the playoff by than I am. You're more likely to make the playoffs in the first place than I am. Um, so that's not really fair either. So I like to incentivize teams to compete as much as possible. I hate to punish teams for the decision to, to, to remain competitive for as long as, as it's viable to do so. Um, and having the trade deadline does punish teams who decide to remain competitive. Uh, so one effect of getting rid of the trade deadline is it encourages teams to be competitive longer. It also means that bad teams can get good value for their, for their aging players. Um, if I'm a competing team right now, Maybe I don't really want to trade for Adam Thielen in week nine because my wide receiver rotation looks pretty strong. And anyway, who knows if Thielen's still going to be good five weeks from now. 
But if I'm heading into week 14 and I have an injury at the position and Adam Thielen is still trucking along and there's a lot more short-term clarity, all of a sudden I'm more willing to pay for that. So it lets bad teams get fair value from the good contenders, um, which serves as a boost to the bad teams and almost like a tax on the contenders where now they have the opportunity to trade away future production for present production, which will, again, reduce their expected future production and kind of bring them back to the pack. Um, So getting rid of the trade deadline serves as a really good parity mechanism. Um, And I would argue it also rewards, if your goal is for the best teams to win the championship most often, um, people will argue that having the trade deadline rewards teams with depth, but it really doesn't. It rewards teams who get lucky with their depth. If I'm extremely deep at wide receiver, Um, and I suffer three injuries at wide receiver, I'm totally fine. I have the depth to cover it. If I suffer three injuries at quarterback, I'm hosed. So it's still, you're you're at the mercy of the injury gods. Um, Whereas if there's no trade deadline, if I suffer three injuries at quarterback, I can trade one of those extra wide receivers. I can trade some of that extra depth I've acquired to get a quarterback to help me through whatever um, stretch I need. having the ability to trade basically activates your depth. It's not that if the if you're able to trade that like you can just acquire players at will. You have to give up something of value to get something of value. So in order to take advantage of that, you need the depth in the first place. Um, so I think if you, for me, when I really look at it at the, at the positive sum layer, I think removing a trade deadline in Dynasty does more to help accomplish those universal goals. It does more to make sure that better teams win. It does more to make sure that bad teams have a path forward. It does more to make sure that um, the league remains competitive um, for as long as possible. Um, so I, me personally, I say, I think more leagues should consider getting rid of the trade deadline. Obviously this isn't a one size fits all solution. Every league is going to be different, but I think people never really consider it. It's just kind of an invisible part of the furniture. Like, of course you have a trade deadline. We've always had a trade deadline. Um, so I would encourage people to look at it more and see if maybe it makes sense for them to, to if not get rid of it, then at least push it back much later in the season. Yeah, I like your sentiments with that. And one thing that I would add is that it feels like that the root cause of why we have a trade deadline and why people often want to enforce the trade deadline and believe that and believe in it and feel like that it, you know, and give the the rationales that they do. I think it's because they're draft centric and everything has always been draft centric. So it's kind of that whole, well, we've always done it this way. It's tradition. It's, oh, you know, it's it, and there's never really a logical reason for it. So what ends up happening is that the people who tend to have the loudest voices in this in this debate often to be often are the teams that are perennially successful and they've done it in a certain fashion that they are used to doing. They've mastered drafting, they've mastered stocking their rosters with talents that they can to provide the depth that is that there is possible for them to have you know, that you would keep in store in case of injury during the playoffs. And so they don't want, and usually when these things come up, um, they're on the road to having a successful season. And when people bring up the idea that maybe we should change it, it probably threatens them to a certain level, um, you know, more in ways than they want to admit because, you know, they've, you know, it feels like it's threatening what they're, what they feel like they've done fairly and why are you trying to change things to 
to just so that it'll suit you. That's how they end up taking it. And so I think at the end of the day, we have to recognize, uh, <coughs> excuse me, with leagues is that, you know, players have to, you know, GMs, I think, need to be open to the idea that there are multiple types of skill sets to managing teams and that we need to keep those avenues as viable as possible, you know, and that, you know, if you're going to limit trading to half the year, you know, then, you know, you're, then I don't think that's really fair because honestly, the best drafters are also usually the savviest about picking up players, not only just off waivers, but off first come first serve. So they're drafting all year long. If you really look at it from that perspective, it's just an extension of the draft. But trading is a different is a different animal altogether. And I would say the most conservative GMs are the ones that don't trade very often, but they but they're drafting all year long. So you kind of have to get it into people's heads. I think that you've got to allow for people are always like, well, I don't like this league because nobody trades. Well. If you give more incentive for people to trade, then that would be good. And then, you know, when you worry about collusion or, you know, how to manage trades, I mean, this comes down to this. To me, it's just the simple and, you know, obviously it's not simple in execution, but it's simple in concept, which is be, be mature, be an adult, be an adult and understand that there are going to be times that you're going to be dealing with people who you actually like who who may um part who may do participate in some things that that aren't really great you know for the league and if there's someone that you have who has a bit of a narcissistic um you know element to their personality and they're trading you know Zach Moss, Kayshawn Butte and you know and Josh Wiley for you know, Justin Jefferson and Brock Purdy, then maybe, yeah, you, you know, you guys need to step in and say, you know, this is, you know, and have, and have a conversation about these things. Or if it's something that's extremely, you know, um, ex just extremely, um, lopsided, you probably will have to have some conversations with people and say, look, you, you don't make deals that are in the best interest of this league, you know? Well, and that's, I mean, that's a problem even with the trade deadline. Like there's yeah. nothing that says that yeah. teams only make bad deals after the proposed deadline. No. Yeah. I, I That's it's an interesting more, point. It's just that, more heightened, you know? Right. Right. Well, and I think everybody's, especially like when you're in the playoffs, I think you're more attuned to yeah. perceptions of unfairness. And that's an interesting point you make about how, like, I think a lot, a lot of the objections to the trade deadline might be zero sum too. Like they're happening on that zero sum level, but I'm not, I didn't really think about that either. But I, I do think that that's probably some of it is it's people who have a certain stylistic advantage are trying to enshrine that advantage into, into the rules of the league. I think a lot of the arguments against allowing trades in the playoffs or, or late in the season could also be repurposed and just as easily be arguments against allowing waiver claims in the playoffs or yeah. late in the season. Yeah. And yet, like, obviously, obviously you have to allow waiver claims in the playoffs. And obviously, obviously you can't allow trades in the playoffs. It's, it's path dependency. It's, this is how we do it because this is how we've always done it. 
it's but it's I, it's almost like it's almost like we it's almost like somebody arguing that that welfare is bad but then that turning right around and accepting corporate welfare you, right. you know i mean it's it, you know it's just that, like you said the perception i would be curious i'd have to think more on it i mean i don't want to be uncharitable um i'm sure there are good principled arguments for why waivers in the playoffs are good but trades in the playoffs are not good um because it's almost like a honestly it feels it's almost like the only way you could say it is that it, it feels like that waivers in the playoffs you're you're still taking an inherent risk because you're probably getting a player who who is a riskier <laughs> bet like if you're adding Aiden O'Connell in the playoffs, say the playoffs started today and Aiden O'Connell just became a starter for the Raiders, and you're like, I'm going to add him and start him, it feels fairer because right. he presents yeah, a greater it, risk than if you traded for Trevor Lawrence. As the opponent of someone who makes a waiver claim, I'm not as threatened by that waiver claim yes. as than I would be. But that's I don't think that's a principled argument. That's not I don't think kind. so at that's all either. In degree yeah. either, yeah. Uh, and then also, like, I think of Tony Gonzalez, the year he announced, like, late in the season, like, this is definitely my last year I'm retiring after the season. Tiki Barber did it, too, I think in 2005. Uh, end of the year, he said, this is my last season. After the season, I'm retiring. If you are a team that is eliminated from the playoffs and you're past the trade deadline and Tiki Barber comes out and says, I'm retiring after this season, if I'm working in the best interest of my team, what am I going to do? I'm going to cut Tiki Barber and I'm going to add somebody who can help me because Tiki Barber is literally useless to me at that point. He's, yeah. I, he, I can't benefit from him at all. But think about it from like that, I think is much more disruptive to the league because a team who just happens to have the number one waiver priority at the time is going to get a yeah. top five fantasy running back for free. And then it's um, that, and then it feels like you're, that feels like cheating on a certain level, but one that we accept and get away with right. in a way that we look at things. And, you know, there, it's funny how, like, when we look at stories, you know, we watch movies and somebody that is a likable character in a likable situation and they fight fire with fire by doing something that's down low and dirty, but we root for them. But the but the, But if the setting were just slightly different, they would be the villain. And I think that that's a perfect example of that because why shouldn't you be able to trade Tiki Barber and Tony Gonzalez to a team that's competing that says like, look, I'm a tight end short from beating from being able to really compete with the top guy in our league, and all I need is this, and you've got him. He's no use to you anymore. I'll pay because now I'm at least I'll get this will be the win now trade that I need, and you get something back in return. I like that more, but for some reason. But that, but it's better to. They'd cut rather him. the bad team cut him and get nothing in return. Yeah, yeah. And the, the top teams could have traded for Barber or Gonzalez too. I, yeah, I've seen some um, go to the extreme and say that once a team is eliminated from the playoffs, they can't make roster moves anymore, and that I think is the worst of all possible yes. worlds because now, like I said, you need to have some sort of parity mechanism where the bad teams can get better. That's definitely a good teams have the opportunity to get better, and bad teams don't. That I think is like the worst possible solution to this dilemma where 
um, if, if a team has a player who's no longer valuable to them, they want to be able to replace it with something that does have value. Yeah, I mean, what if, I, you know, I'm going to invoke this into, into play because this is my superstitious way of saying if you keep putting the energy out there, maybe it'll actually happen. You know, it, it's from my old Cleveland Browns days of being a, a young fan. I, I still am going to do this. Is that, you know, what happens if you're a team that doesn't really have a great quarterback and you're looking at this and you say, you know, the Browns really want to get rid of Deshaun Watson, and they they have no chance of doing this. But Chad Kelly's sitting up there in the CFL, and they could probably pay him a modest contract, or the Vikings could pay him a modest contract. And you know, why not take a chance and say, you know what, give me, give me Chad, you know, Commissioner. I know he's not on our list right now, other than if he's in flea flicker, you know, probably. But put him on my list and uh, placehold him for me and add him during these weeks. And there are lots of players that that I love adding during those times. If I'm out of the playoffs, shoot, I'm rearranging all sorts of things to to try and, you know, get a jump on some guys that I think in year two might have a chance to to develop or at least give me some trade value. So I'm I'm with you on that. I always love at the end of the year adding recently retired players. Um, so like I, Andrew Luck sits on the street all year and then week 17 rolls around and I add Andrew Luck just in case Andrew Luck changes his mind probably won't happen happened with Rob Gronkowski, you know, he's sitting on the street and uh, you know, you get an extra two or three seasons out of a, a top 10 fantasy tight end. Uh, Cause Gronk changes his mind. People change their minds sometimes. Um, but if, if you're saying bad teams can't make that move that there's this avenue to improving their teams, that's only open to good teams. Um, and yeah, it's the worst of all worlds. Yeah. You have to allow transactions and and i feel for me personally if you're allowing transactions you should allow transactions i get that every league is different and and if you have a strong aesthetic objection to trades in the playoffs that's okay i don't want to discount aesthetic objections it's important that you set up the league in the way that you want um and that that all the participants think will be most fun i just i would encourage people to think more about it because i think a lot of times it's there by default um and if you think about it and you consider, you know, all of the all of the arguments and you decide, no, I just really want to trade deadline. And that's what happened in my league. We started without one and then a team made a trade during the playoffs and then immediately complained and said, I shouldn't have been allowed to make that trade in the playoffs. And I'm like, well, does your opponent have a problem with it? He doesn't. It was me. I was fine with it. Like, go ahead. If you want to trade for a defense, like the odds that it even helps you are, are minuscule if you want to blow up some of your future draft capital. I'm actually happy about that. But, you know, the league decided that they had aesthetic objections to it. And so they voted to, so the irony is I have trade deadlines in all of my dynasty leagues um, against my objections, but I managed to argue those trade deadlines later and later and later. And now they don't kick in until the end of the regular season, um, which at least allows you to capture some of the benefits and it allows teams to keep competing to the end. And um, so it's better than, the early trade deadline, I'll, I'll still push to get rid of it entirely. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that at the end of the day, if if someone's making egregious trades, and every you know, it's gonna, I I like to do the whole all trades are fair, and just deal with that because sometimes even the ones that people I've seen argue in the past that they said, oh that was horrible, it actually ends up working out in the favor of the person who everyone thought got ripped off. And then the person that they thought was doing the ripping off ended up getting their just desserts. I mean, it doesn't always happen that way, obviously. Um, but I look at it as that if this happens repeatedly and you're feeling like the league isn't fun anymore and it's not just you, it's it's like it 
there's two or three, then maybe at that point you guys you guys need to be able to have the side conversation with the person and and say to them, you know, because if you do the whole voting and try and split it apart, it becomes rancorous and it's already over. But if you're like, I like to do all trades are fair. And if people are like, look, I'm, you know, people are thinking I'm leaving this league because it's not fun because it's one person's continually taking advantage of someone then maybe you can get a group of people together and say, listen, you know, we're, you know, you can vote to whether you're going to kick somebody out of the league or you're going to start it over. And if you have to have that conversation and that person doesn't like it and they're really taking advantage of everybody, that personality probably doesn't belong in a league. You know, that's just the way they, I mean, I'm just going to put it out there. I mean, I would just say people who continually know that they're flouting the rules and act like that they don't understand what people are talking about are generally assholes and the only way you're going to deal with assholes is 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 basically everyone's going to have to act together to say you're not allowed to do this and if and if you feel like you're going to lose a friendship with an asshole well maybe that's a good thing you know but you know that's my simplistic take on it um what about trading for picks i mean what are your what are your thoughts with that i i think people don't do it enough it it's hard because markets are always local i always like to say markets are local everybody says should i be trading for this player should i be trading for that player and we're going to discuss later it's very hypocritical for me to say that we're going to discuss later should we be trading for this particular player at dynasty <laughs> but um the answer is always it depends on what it costs it depends on what you have to give up uh, for the longest time in my home dynasty league, I found that future picks were just wildly undervalued. Basically, the market of people who were in on future picks was me. And so there was no bidding against them. Like, I basically could name my price. And I there was, I think, a six or eight year stretch where at one point or another during the season, I controlled um, four out of the 10 first round picks in every draft. Like you just got to the point where, and, and a lot of times I'm rolling it over, I'll trade this year's first for next year's first and second and, and compounding. And I, I wasn't executing all those picks. I was usually trading them away. I might draft one or two players a year with those firsts. Um, but then the league partly wised up and it partly got to the point where um, one or two or three like really dominant teams emerged. And that kind of changes the market calculus where you had teams that were pretty good, you know, they're above average. And before they'd look at it, look at it and say, you know, I'm not the best team in the league, but I'm close enough that if things break my way, you know, I can make some noise. So I'm still going to keep focusing on older players and focusing on this season. And maybe I'll trade my picks away. Um, whereas when you get a couple like juggernaut teams, even the good teams are like, okay, maybe things will break my way, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to invest a lot more in this season because it looks like a long shot and so you get more teams vying for first round picks and so i don't really trade for as many future firsts as i used to just because the prices are a lot higher and the number of teams um, trying to get them is more and the number of teams willing to part with them is less uh so it depends on your league in general though i think that good teams are not willing enough to make trades that hurt them in the short term but help them in the long term because we think that fantasy is a lot more predictable than it is. And we look at this and we're like, well, if I 
decrease my, if I trade from this wide receiver to that wide receiver, I'm going to decrease my production by three points per game. Um, first of all, you don't really know if that's going to happen. There's so The error bars around the two receivers are so large that you can't say with any confidence what the impact is going to be. Second of all, even if that does happen, there's very low confidence that it will actually matter. Most fantasy football matchups are not decided by three points. They're decided by 33 points. Uh, and if it's like a three-point-a-game difference, the odds that it flips a game that would have been a win into a loss, very, very low. Obviously, when that does happen, it's super impactful. But by and large, um, and then and, and occasionally, too, what happens is the guy who we thought was going to be significantly worse winds up blowing up, especially over small samples. Uh, we had a team win in my home dynasty one year that was ninth out of 10 in points um and snuck into the playoffs with some like extremely favorable schedule luck and then he had darius hayward bay and brent Selleck just absolutely blow up and he had the most dominant three-week playoff run in the history of our league he finished second first and first in the three weeks in in points um and and it, it was like hayward bay who at the time was like at the time we entered the playoffs was like wide receiver 60 wound up being like wide receiver four over the three playoff weeks. If he had traded away Hayward Bay for an upgrade at receiver, ironically, he would not have won the championship. So I think good teams, they're too married to the predictability of the game and they're too scared to say, I'm going to, yes, I think this trade is fair value, but I can't give up points in my lineup. I need these points in my lineup. So in general, I think good teams should be more willing to trade away productive players. Um, and I, I live by this advice. I, um, When Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell were the number one running back and number one wide receiver in Dynasty, I traded them for four future first round picks. And people are like, oh, I guess you're throwing in the towel on the season. I guess you're not contending. And I'm like, no, I want to win a title. I think I'm one of the best teams in the league this year. I just think the value that I'm getting back is much greater than what I'm giving up. That wound up being a very dramatic example because that was the year Le'Veon Bell did his holdout um, and didn't play a single game. And it was the year before Antonio Brown did like whatever the heck happened to Antonio Brown. Right. Um, And so I got Saquon Barkley and three extra first round picks out of that. Um, And I wound up winning a title. I, I forget if it was that year or the next year, but like really trading away the number one running back and number one wide receiver in Dynasty made my team stronger not in the long term but in the short term too um so i always think my my general rule is um flexes for firsts um if there's a guy who i consider a flex on my roster um whether because he's older or because he's not um i i'm basically willing to trade any of those guys for any future first at any time even if it leaves me kind of with a hole in my lineup um because it's unlikely to cost me, and, and if it does cost me, it's unlikely to cost me as much as it, it as I think it will. It, it, the fear there is much greater than the reality. Um, and then I would also argue, not only should people be more willing to trade productive players for future picks, um, I think that they should expand how far in the future they're willing to go with the picks. Everybody's always focusing on next year's first round picks. Um, I find that the market, I was looking recently um, at completed trades from from Fantasy Calc and excluding trades where somebody traded both their 2024 and their 2025 first round pick. um, Typically, the number of trades, including 2024 picks, is about four times higher than the volume of trades, including 2025 picks. 
The problem with trading 2024 picks is that pick values are very, very, um, they spike very high at the top. Like the difference between the number one and the number three pick is not the same size as the difference between the number 10 and the number 12 pick. It's eight to 10 times higher. So when you're trading for future picks, you're really buying lottery tickets, hoping that these picks spike pretty high up the distribution. The problem when you're trading for 2024 picks is that teams largely have a pretty good idea of how good their team is at this point. And so the guys whose team is has a, has a credible chance of spiking way up in the distribution and getting the number one overall pick, they're not going to trade you their pick unless you're like willing to pay just a huge king's ransom. So, so your dreams of buying a first round pick on the cheap and having it turn into Marvin Harrison Jr., those are not realistic. But teams dramatically overrate how stable year-to-year -year performance is. And so the teams that are very good today, they assume they're going to be very good next year. And the correlation there is just super low. And so if you trade for 2025 picks from good teams, there is a really good chance that I don't know who's going to be like the consensus hot commodity in 2025, but there will be one. There always is one. And yeah. your chances of landing that guy with like an Aaron Jones are much higher if you're willing to go um, an extra year out in the future. Um, does that mean you should also be looking at 2026 picks? There, I think the advantage is much less um, because the correlation between production this year and production in 2025 um, is not really any stronger than the correlation between production this year and production so, in 2026. Let me just ask this. Are you saying possibly that one strategy to take is, is if you're rebuilding and you're trying to like stock up on draft picks is to try and look at all the good teams in the top third of your, your league in 2024 or 2023 and say, yeah, give me 2025 picks, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, okay. and they're more willing to part with them partly because they're winning um, now. Yeah. Right. And because people time discount, um, you know, it, Rationally so, I would not trade my 2023 pick for a 2085 pick. I'm probably not going to be alive in 2085. Um, that's like obviously rational. You can follow that to its logical conclusion. And yes, picks this year are more valuable than picks next year. Um, but teams will value their pick based on how good they think their team is. Bad teams will value their pick as a high pick. Good teams will value their pick as a low pick. And in terms of 2024, teams will largely be right. And in terms of 2025, teams will largely be wrong. So if you're trying to get good pick, if you're trying to get good picks at bad pick prices, that's the play is you target teams that are good right now. Um, and especially even like counterintuitively teams that are like young and good. Like if there's a team that has Jamar Chase and um, uh, Puka Nakua. He, Right, and Bijan Robinson, and they're like, well, I'm young. There's no way I miss the playoffs. Like, absolutely. <laughs> like, they absolutely believe that. And that correlation yeah. is low enough that, that you can get that pick at a substantial discount relative to, like, if you go up to a bad team, the bad team's going to be like, well, I'm bad now. I'll probably be bad next year. Yeah. Um, and so they're going to charge you good pick prices for their pick because they're assuming it's a good pick. Uh, yeah, I don't think trading for 2026 picks is as profitable just because the correlation isn't really any weaker. You're not more likely to get good picks at bad pick prices in 2026 than you are in 2025. And also because 
people hear 2025 pick and they think that this is an asset that is useful two years that's like two years away from its from maturity but the reality is 2024 picks can net you good players today 2025 picks can net you good players a year from now so it's a pick that sounds like it's two years from being valuable to your team but it's really only one year away from maturity um so for a lot of reasons i think that that 2025 tends to be the sweet spot Um, in general would you add 2026 picks as like a throw in like if you're gonna get like if you're gonna get a first round if if you if you want to i mean is there a case where you would say add in a 2026 and you feel okay with that if you were yeah absolutely absolutely i'll do anything to get the values to match and i'm always happy to take on picks because picks are very safe stores of value a pick is never going to go to zero um a player can like kirk cousins cruising along tears his achilles value drops substantially 2026 picks don't tear their achilles they don't get busted for speeding and get drug tested and it turns out they were smoking pot and now they have a six game suspension right. it doesn't happen to 2026 picks 2026 picks don't lose camp battles there's no real downside risk that picks value is going to at worst stay where it is at best improve so especially if you're um if you have like a lot of extra value on your bench future picks are a great place to park it um i just don't really think that there are instances where i would prefer 2025 picks to 2024 picks especially for like really good teams i would rather have your 2025 first than your 2024 first um I don't think there's any instance, even with really good teams, that I'd prefer the 2026 to the 2024, but I'd prefer their 2026 first to their 2024 second, um, or I'd even prefer like a really good team's 2026 first to a really bad team's 2024 second, just because it has that potential to spike super high, and it's like a lottery ticket. If you land in the top three, the, the value gains are just so disproportionate to the cost of acquisition. Cool. Very cool. No, I mean, it's a, I think it's very practical advice and very helpful for teams, especially right now. If you're, if you're listening to this show and you're obviously a dynasty player and you're struggling right now, then you're, this is right up your alley because obviously you haven't quit. Cause if you quit, you probably not even listen to any fantasy podcasts right now. <laughs> um, you know, but I think that if you enjoy competing and trying to figure out every angle and stone to, to turn over to figure out how to get better, you know, this is very practical advice with that. And I think the next topic that we're we're gonna go to should be kind of interesting as a oh, you know, maybe a current illustration of a player that that people are trying to value in the market. And that's that's Trevor Lawrence. And um you know, I, I happen to see that you were like, yeah, I'm going to pester Matt to give his take on Trevor Lawrence on, on on Twitter after seeing a little bit of the thread. But if you will posit what, you know, what really the circumstance is for us to have this discussion. Uh, Trevor Lawrence is a pretty interesting and polarizing player. Sometimes you will see cleavages in, in valuations on players between like the stat guys and the film guys, like... Brock Purdy, and he's not really a good example because everybody agrees that his numbers are not necessarily wholly representative of his play as a player to date. But like Brock Purdy, if you look at the analytics, his EPA per play, his whatever, off the charts. If you look at the film, um, it's good. I mean, it's positive. I'm not saying he's he's played poorly, but it's nowhere commensurate to 
that level of performance, just because that level of performance is such an outlier. No level of play could be really commensurate to that. Sure. Um, to attack of Alolo is the same thing. Like his production is just like outside the bounds of reality almost. Um, and and so sometimes you'll get like people who are coming more from a production-based standpoint or a process-based standpoint will, who will say like, you know, you should be acquiring Brock Purdy, you should be acquiring to attack Avaloa. And sometimes you get people who are coming more from a process-based standpoint or a film-based standpoint, and they're saying, um, you should probably be selling Brock Birdie or you should be selling to attack Valoa. Uh, Trevor Lawrence is really interesting because you have some process-slash-film-based metrics that are really quite high on him. Uh, I think PFF has him graded, Pro Football Focus has him graded as their number five passer to this point. Uh, Steven Ruiz does weekly quarterback rankings that are they're meant as like a snapshot in time, like who's going to give me the best chance of winning today? And he also has Tagavaloa fifth. Um, on the other hand, Tagavaloa has never produced anywhere near that level in terms of EPA per play, completion percentage over expectation, um, in terms of just like raw passing stats, fantasy points. Um, and then you also get some film guys who, uh, Scott Barrett of uh, Fantasy Points. They have um, kind of a, a data charting operation very similar to Pro Football Focus. Um, and he said that their data charting operation says that uh, Lawrence is rushing through his progressions and the footwork is sloppy. Um, Greg Cassell kind of agrees with that assessment. So there are some film guys who really love Lawrence and there are some film guys who are not really seeing Lawrence who say like, no, he's actually not playing better than his production. Um, and you get some analytics guys who, who like Lawrence and you get some analytics guys who don't like Lawrence. Um, and so it's an interesting test case where the perception around Lawrence um, is very similar to Andrew Luck. Like this is a guy who is like clearly a franchise quarterback. Um, he's going to be a long-term high-end starter um, for years to come. And the performance is not there. And so the discourse today is, is like, is Trevor Lawrence a buy? Should you buy him now before the performance catches up? Uh, or is he a sell? Should you sell him now before the perception catches up to the reality that's being shown by his performance? Um, and so I have some thoughts from a data perspective. I was curious first, if you had any thoughts from a film perspective on what you're saying. Sure, and let me start with Tagovailoa and Purdy, because I thought that was fascinating to talk about how the data is off the charts, but maybe there's no way what they do film-wise can match that. And I think that that's probably true. Um, but as someone who just watched Brock Purdy in a game that everyone's up in arms about because it's culminated a three-week period where he's thrown three touchdowns to five interceptions. I came away unbelievably impressed with Brock Purdy on Sunday. Um, now, I look at things a little differently on film with some than some guys. And and part of that is, is that there's two things I really value from quarterback play, in, um, and that's the ability to win from the pocket and the ability to um, I really anticipate and show fast processor and pinpoint placement in tight windows. And when then you combine, if you combine all the things I just mentioned together and make plays doing that, um, you're in a very high tier of player. And so when I look at Brock Purdy and I see, oh, he threw an interception to Jermaine Pratt on a busted play where George Kittle fell down. Uh, on a on a shovel pass and that was the only viable receiver for that play 
and he had to make something up. And yeah, he threw an interception because Pratt came from the backside and, and made a one-handed tip to himself. And should he have thrown it? No. Was it a you know a play that people would go, oh, his poise isn't there? Sure, but I've seen Matthew Stafford do this. I've seen Patrick Mahomes do it. I've seen lots of great quarterbacks make this kind of mistake on a busted play, and he's in game 14 to 17, if you want to count the playoffs, in his starts in the NFL. So then he follows up with a second interception in that game. Again, Logan Wilson, context, okay? Logan Wilson baits him, and he thought he moved Wilson. Wilson cuts it off, makes a play. Logan Wilson has 10 interceptions in three seasons. He's a linebacker. I looked up active interception leaders um, on Monday just to see who they were. And, you know, Pro Football Reference gives a nice long list. And towards the bottom of the list are guys like our, our linebackers. You know, most of them are defensive backs. But the linebackers are like C.J. Mosley and Bobby Wagner and Levante David and Deion Jones. And they all have 13 or 14 interceptions. Only three or four more. And they've played two to three times as long in the NFL with these active numbers than Logan Wilson. Logan Wilson is a is a fantastic coverage linebacker in terms of being able to, um, in, from the avenue of being able to bait quarterbacks into getting, you know, cutting off passing lanes. So I look at that and I'm thinking, okay, he's thrown two interceptions and two passes. It's obviously cost them the game at that point. He was he was the big reason they lost that game. Did he fall apart after that? Was he Jimmy Garoppolo where it was like completely Garoppoloed in the way that, that Jimmy has always known to do? No, he leads him on a 75-yard play drive and, and demonstrates some really difficult throws. He has an easy throw to George Kittle who drops the ball in the end zone and then the next play or not in the red zone and the next play Purdy now has to make one of these plays that nobody likes to see throwing it across his body across the field to the opposite side on the move to his right throwing back to his left and completes it you know and these are the types of plays I remember seeing him make at Iowa State and I go I don't know if he's going to be able to do it but he's so close and you can see how he reads it the timing in which he reads it and identifies it and gets it out that I think he might be able to get away with some of these on occasion as long as he can as long as he's not reckless about it. And I've seen enough plays from Brock Purdy before all of that sequence that I'm showing you where he's throwing it in the windows of three defenders off of drops that are in tight pockets and he's had to climb. Most quarterbacks don't climb pockets well. Most quarterbacks don't do what he did on the 75 play drive. 75 yard drive where he literally has to slide inside and climb in a compound movement keep his feet under him and deliver an accurate ball in a tight window he did that that was one of the most impressive quarterbacking plays i've seen from a technique standpoint and he was repeatedly making these plays and i look at that and i look at the rest of his game and the and the issues that he's having are more indicative of kind of my theory and derivative derived kind of from talking with scouts about how you evaluate quarterbacks over their first probably 30 starts. And that's that whole idea of first four to six games, are do they look like their scouting report from college just in a faster game with more athletes who are playing either basic defense, their basic scheme without much tweaks, or a super aggressive scheme like what the Falcons did against Will Levis thinking we can rattle this guy and expose him and he's he's not going to get aggressive and find the open man deep which failed dramatically on Sunday um, 
And then after that, the six game six to fourteen, that's when teams start accumulating the scouting reports. They start to implement things gradually and start to look at each other's work and build a book on the guy. And so around weeks fourteen to seventeen, fourteen to eighteen, that to me is like the bottom for the quarterback in terms of like that phase of I'm doing what I did in college and I'm doing it well and I've got surrounding talent and I've been able to you know, accumulate the basic knowledge of what's expected of me with the scheme and use my current abilities with some refinements to get there. And then after weeks, you know, 14 to 17 to games 30, that's when you're seeing whether this quarterback has developed into, has improved beyond his scouting report. So to me, that 14 to 17 range is really the trough. It's like, this is the, this is as bad as it's going to get. Like, that's kind of how I see it in theory. It doesn't always work out in that week's span. It can be a little earlier. It can be a little later. But that's usually the trough. And so when I look at Purdy in that in that trough, and I'm going, he's, making, he's still making decisions and throws that only 8 to 10 quarterbacks make. And I wouldn't even say that many. I would say more like 6 to 8 quarterbacks actually make. Because a lot of them, like Jalen Hurts, the... And, and Dak Prescott don't make those types of throws. And Prescott may not be in that conversation anymore. But, you know, you know, there are guys that don't make those types of decisions or move this well in the pocket. So the arm strength isn't there. But, yeah, I'm, I look at Purdy and I wanted to give that in context because then when we start to look at Trevor Lawrence and watch his film and or to, finish, to put a fine point on Purdy and Tagovailoa talk, talk is this, is that... Both those guys are playing with all-world receiving talent. You know, George Kittle, um, Brandon Ayuk is an, is becoming an elite route runner. Debo Samuel is an elite after-the-catch player. Christian McCaffrey is the best versus best all-around back in football. Um, if you're going to count receiving skills to the level that they are, so you add that to it, um, plus the scheme that's you know that's been pretty on. Kind of on the 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 forefront for you know defenses to defend, and I I would say yeah this the film performance isn't going to match that, but it seems to me that those guys are a multiplier, so that when you do make a successful play, the multiplier is much higher compared to if say Deshaun Watson were playing lights out, but he had Elijah Moore, David Bell, and and say David Njoku, okay, and say Cooper wasn't in the lineup, you know, it's there's a difference. In the same way that when Tagovailoa was doing this, I mean, Jalen Waddle, if there was no Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddle might be the most exciting wide receiver in football in terms of how he would probably be used with that speed element that he has. But he's just the number two receiver and an unbelievable high octane offense with like four world class speedsters, um, and a and a and a couple of other pretty good runners on top of that, and a scheme that is like completely turning things on its ear. So when he produces well, yes, there's another multiplier because you have to have a multiplier effect when you're when someone says on film, like Jay Moyer says, Devin A chain's running through you know a four lane highway at two a.m you know, against the Denver Broncos or name another team. That's that multiplier effect because the scheme did that. How do you quantify that? 
that's the difficult part for your, you know folks who are trying to quantify it but from a contextual standpoint to maybe just simply say hey the you know that's part of the numbers there but it shouldn't take so much away from the fact that Tonga Vailoa is executing well that you know Purdy is executing well now the question is do you buy those guys knowing that that surrounding talent may not last and you could probably bet against it and you're going to profit more if you're playing the profit game now but if you're saying to yourself I want a starting quarterback a guy who's probably going to give me starter level numbers starter level numbers for the next eight to ten years and yeah they may have a couple years interspersed here where the numbers are better than the others and where they fall out one year or for two years and then come back I would bet on those guys um, based on what they do well so then when you take Lawrence to this you know the I looked at the you know Scott Barrett's chart with um, you know adjusted net you know um, adjusted net yards per pass attempt and you know we got to remember this is where context doesn't always fall into place with the number because the number was 5.7 which is like near rock bottom out of like what 40 or 50 quarterbacks maybe more than that um, on his list because he's showing a list of let me look at it real quick right here um, he starts the conversation with quarterback efficiency um, and then has a chart accompanying with it that shows quarterback leaders by adjusted net yards per attempt first 42 games all time has 65 players on it and Trevor Lawrence is 63rd on that with a 5.7 adjusted net yards per attempt so when you look at that you're like oh my god no wonder we need to have a conversation about this because people are talking about him as he's borderline elite or close to or or, or already there and you're talking about a guy who's in there with Trent Green and Eric Kramer you know and Robert Griffin the third you know in terms of this low whereas you know the people at the top are Mahomes Warner Marino Lamar Jimmy Garoppolo is a bit of an outlier Mark Ribbon Tony Romo Aaron Rodgers some pretty good quarterbacks listed in there but then when you look at the context of this I would say you know 22 and 2023 his adjusted net yards per attempt was 6.66 and 6.24 um during that this past 25 game span and in that 25 game span I understand that everybody's you've got to look at a certain sample and 42 has been determined in terms of you know the number of seasons but when you look at that those numbers that would put Trevor Lawrence in the top half of this chart and then I would think the conversation isn't as dramatic of one if you're going to say that six, somewhere between 6.4 6.6 is really his truer number and so why would you justify that he does have a truer number there and I would say my argument for it whether it's right or wrong is that in 2021 he played with Urban Meyer arguably the worst NFL coach in history who literally drafted players who looked at he was looking at Tom Luganville's high school recruiting lists basically and not what they've done since they entered as their freshman year and he had a 4.54 um number i mean that should scream to you this season was so fucked up let's just give it a mulligan you know because this wasn't trevor lawrence this was the scheme this was the whole coaching this was a disaster we need to start from scratch so if i were going to make an argument i would say 
and especially because he had to learn a whole new scheme in 2022. Um, so I and have a whole new setup. So I look at this and you know that from that number, you, you know, I would feel a little bit differently. And then when I look at the tape, yeah, maybe he's rushing through some progressions. Um, I can see that on some plays, but I also see, you know, that there's there's some things that are worth noting. One is that the Jacksonville Jaguars are middle of the road towards like more above average in terms of sacks taken this year. So is that because the offensive line is good or is it because Trevor Lawrence is mobile and can create and has a strong arm? I would argue that it's more the latter than it is the former because when they're facing teams like the Pittsburgh Steelers who are able to get through and pressure him consistently and he's making throws that I look at that are high level targets or targets that get dropped um, that are right on the hands of a guy like Calvin Ridley, who I would argue, while he doesn't have a drop rate that's higher than anybody, you know, who he doesn't have a high drop rate, the drops he has, I've seen, have been somewhat impactful. Um, they tend to be in, in more impactful situations or on plays that are harder passes that you would expect a top guy to, to catch. And that's just from watching him a lot in Atlanta and watching him here. I've seen some of that. He's, an, he's a fantastic player, but he's not an elite player. And I think that people are expecting that to happen. So you, you look at some of the throws that Lawrence makes. I've seen, you know, I've seen him do a great job of reading coverage early and spotting holes and hitting, you know, in the Pittsburgh game and in the Buffalo game, being able to make impactful plays like, you know, find touchdowns on plays where he anticipated the the openings there or the coverage bus early enough to get the ball out i've seen him have to make very difficult plays and avoid pressure i'm a per i'm a i'm a lawrence fan as well and i would be more inclined that his numbers are going to more bear out towards what steven ruiz is saying what the you know what pff has for him at this point and let's let's also understand that there's a big mystery, and I don't mean to criticize like um, PFF or Fantasy Points because I, 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 what I really want to point out is just more from a. I'm being critical, but more from the standpoint of their 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 charting is a bit of a black box. If I, you, you know, it's you're not sitting down with these employees and what they're charting, and I can tell you as someone who charts quarterbacks a lot. Um, you know, there's a lot of give and take about what an accurate pass is, about what's pinpoint versus what's not pinpoint, about was, you know, about what was good placement, you know, and whether this was against a certain coverage or not. Was that really that coverage? Would you really technically call it that? You know, there's a, there are some things that are, that are, um, uh, problematic in terms and, and how you have to define it and that's always been my specialty before I got to football was when you're evaluating this type of performance how do you cut down the variation how do you how do you define the criteria how often do you calibrate with your staff how what how do you score things are you giving what's your scoring methodology because that breeds more variation so a lot of what they're doing um, I don't know specifically what it is, but I can tell you that if they're probably paying people to chart, um, 
not as much as who they're paying to write um and so and if they're doing and their emphasis is on getting you know clicks and on getting revenue for ads and on on you know those types of things their business model is probably as such that the people who are doing the charting are um not getting the level of training and continuous training that you would say is optimal um on that end now is this helpful information i think it probably is and they're still probably doing a good enough job for you to have good information on, on certain levels but when you have issues like trevor lawrence this is where the black box of what's going on in there may really be involved and and you know and it's understandable for their business models to do what they're doing and if they're hearing me talk about this i'm sure they're going to get bowed up and say and feel defensive and feel like well you know we pay our employees our employees are well trained and we know what we're doing and and i would say um that's going to be a nice standard answer and someone would say who am i to say that and i would say someone who's had 15 years of quality um director training who had to pay several thousand dollars to get certified and what how it is to control variation in you know evaluation processes that are used in fortune 500 companies that's what i would say but i know most people in football writing probably don't have that experience um so i don't want to be too hard on them but at the same time i i think that that's where the problematic of charting is like it's a good idea um but they're just getting started and if PFF has a very different number than, um, you know, fantasy points or a different enough to spark this kind of conversation. That would tell me that there's a good bit of variation in how they view their charting of quarterbacks. Yeah. Uh, yeah I think that's all great. Um, on Purdy, I, I do want to say, like, we just had this conversation just last week about how interceptions are the least reflective of the underlying <laughs> level of play. And that, like, Purdy had been throwing fewer interceptions than he should have been based on his his level and style of play. Yeah. But he just as easily can throw more. It's funny how, I mean, I love interceptions because they serve as such a referendum on a player because they're so impactful on the outcome of the game, but they mean so little to like the player itself and himself and what he's actually doing. And and so I, I think that discourse is so funny the whole yeah. brock purdy thing that that yeah. when he's throwing no interceptions everybody's like oh he's the greatest and then and, he throws a few and oh he's a bomb and he's the same guy he's and, the same guy and the windows are yeah the windows are getting tighter because you know teams understand what mike shanahan wants to do which is throw in the middle of the field and they're going to be t tougher windows for guys that he needs to target because debo samuel's not in this oh debo samuel's not in the game well, of course he's not going to be as good, especially if the numbers are off the charts right now with Debo Samuel mostly in the lineup. When you take him out or you take Jalen, you take a Tyree kill out, suddenly things are going to go down if there are people who bust the curve or who are like so high end in terms of what's that multiplier effect. You take Randy Moss out of Dante Culpepper's world and guess what happens, you know? I mean, it was, it's the same, I mean, Dante Culpepper was not a great quarterback, but I mean, at the same time, those first initial years with Chris Carter and Randy Moss, I mean, you have two of the best receivers in the game at that time. That's going to, that's going to change things. You know, when you hit a good play, it's going to be a great play in the same way that if you give, if you give Bo Jackson a big hole, it's going to be different than if you give Jordan Howard a big hole. 
it, and and sometimes I think we we forget about that. Yeah, for sure. I, I I say all the time, football is not a low entanglement sport. Football is a high entanglement sport. And if you're like, if you can't accept that, go to baseball. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly yeah for for sure. So when I see a list thoughts? like it, yeah, so. yeah. When I see a list like the one Scott. Von Lawrence. My first thought is always like, let's look at the top of the list. Let's look at the bottom of the list. And yeah. like, yes, obviously I expect the top of the list to look better than the bottom of the list because I don't, this might come shocking to a lot of your listeners, but good players tend to play better than bad players um, <laughs> by and large. So yes, tops of lists do look better than bottoms. Wait of lists, a but <laughs> you know, let's, let's okay. give a moment for everybody. Yeah, to we, process we have, that. yeah, you take a couple of deep breaths. I know that you may need to see a, see your favorite counselor after that, but okay, go ahead. But you look at the bottom of the list of guys in adjusted net yards per attempt through, um, 42 career starts, Lawrence third from the bottom. That's bad. Culpepper bottom five, um, Andy Dalton, Daryl LaMonica, Steve Young, Matt Hasselbeck, uh, Matthew Stafford, these guys are all like bottom 10, bottom 12, Hall of Famer, Sonny Jurgensen, bottom 20. There's a lot of really good players at the bottom of the list. It's yeah. not, and, and usually the reason they're at the bottom of the list is explained by context. Either they played in a different era or they played on bad teams to start their career. They had a lot of injuries like Robert Griffin III. Um, and so I ask, is there context for why Trevor Lawrence might rank it at the bottom of such a list? What? Yes. Yes. And that was Urban Meyer. And that was, I mean, you, we, we don't have time to get into everything that Urban Meyer did on the Jaguars, but it was, it was really catastrophic in a way that is not like garden variety catastrophic. That was not just like a garden variety, bad coaching tenure. This like, was crimes like against football. Like if there was right. crimes against humanity and crimes against football, he would be, he would be charged for crimes against football and the football UN. Yeah. 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 And, and I love like having hypotheses like this because ultimately they're testable. Um, and so our hypothesis is that Trevor Lawrence's first year is unusually impactful on his placement on that. So I went to Pro Football Reference. I went to their stat head data query tool. And I said, all right, let's let's look at all quarterbacks in their 18th through 42nd start, which is all of Trevor Lawrence's career minus Urban Meyer. Um, and then let's put a, th a threshold that gives us a similar size list. I find if you do 800 pass attempts, that gets us 70 players. So it's about the same size list. The other list was 65 players. Let's see how um, all quarterbacks with at least 800 pass attempts rank in adjusted net yards per attempt from games 18 through 42. And surprise, surprise, Trevor Lawrence is 19th out of 80, so uh, out of 70. So he's in like the top quarter of the data now. You, you remove that one catastrophic year and he rises dramatically. Um, you have uh, Deshaun Watson at 15, Andrew Luck at 16, Justin Herbert at 17, Jeff Garcia at 18, Trevor Lawrence at 19, and then Bernie Kosar, Jim Everett, Joe Montana, Matt Hasselbeck, Matthew Stafford. Um, and then these are all across the board good quarterbacks, which is the other thing that like when you use a volume filter, like 800 pass attempts, like you have to be a pretty good quarterback to get that volume filter. Um, so that's doing a lot of, of, of the lifting. There's not going to be many bad quarterbacks on this list, but Lawrence ranks relatively high. It's not exceptionally high. He's like a yard per attempt behind the leaders. Um, it's not a perfect list. Like Matt Schaub ranks fourth. Kirk Cousin ranks 
second. Those were good quarterbacks, but I, nobody would argue that they were top five quarterbacks of the last 60 years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you have this hypothesis that Urban Meyer is pulling Lawrence back. You test it and you see, yes, that's absolutely the case. Since Urban Meyer left, maybe he hasn't been a world beater, but he's been pretty solid given the context of like his age and everything. Um, so and yeah, I look just, at Lawrence. Let's just, oh, go ahead. One, let's just add one thing to that. And let's just say one of the biggest problems is that we're weighing him in the context of he's the top quarterback of the past X number of years. And honestly, like, just as a draft guy, whenever I hear that, just shut that down. Like that's you, we don't know just, you know, I mean, I'm going to make my bets just like anybody else. But when you hear that kind of thing, generally take away the hyperbole. It's generally hyperbole and just say, he's a good, he's a good franchise quarterback prospect and leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and especially two, three years in, that's out the window, right? By three years, you typically have a better idea. Either he has performed as one of the best young quarterbacks of all time, and you can continue saying that, or he hasn't. And like at this point, that carries much less weight. The fact that he, he had such a high um, evaluation coming into the league. Well, we've kind of seen 42 games of him play. We shouldn't be viewing him the same today as we did coming out of Clemson because we have new information and we need to incorporate that new information. Um, in terms of the larger discourse, like everybody always wants recommendation is Trevor Lawrence to buy is Trevor Lawrence to sell. I would say um, the most likely outcome for him at this point, based on you know what I'm seeing of the numbers and the comparables is uh, probably something more like Eli Manning where he has a long, stable career of like not really top five, not really top 10 numbers. Like he's a good long-term starter. That might be like the most, like the mode outcome. If we simulate his career 10,000 times, that might be the most common. I'm not saying it's more than 50-50 that that's how it shakes out, but like that's probably the trajectory the he most looks on. The safest one, yeah. Right. But there's a lot of comparable players in his orbit right now who went on to have very, very high upside from there. Um, so I'm not ruling out that like maybe Trevor Lawrence is this guy that we all thought he's going to be. Maybe he's going to be the next, um, you know, like Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, like perennial top five kind of guy. Um, and also there's some bad quarterbacks too. Like maybe Trevor Lawrence never really improves his efficiency from here and he becomes the next Andy Dalton. That's also in the range of outcomes. Um, is he a buy, is he sell? I don't know. It kind of depends on the price that you're getting for him. Um, I haven't sat down and ranked quarterbacks in a while in Dynasty. I have a feeling if I did, he'd probably be in the 8 to 10 range. Um, so kind of judge based on that. I feel like a lot of the discourse is just the need to have a discussion because I feel like the people who are quote unquote high on Lawrence and the people who are quote unquote low on Lawrence probably don't disagree very meaningfully no. from that ranking. I would imagine most of them have them have him eight to 10 plus or minus, I don't know, maybe three slots. That's, that's exactly where I would put him is somewhere really probably more in that six to 10 range. That's where I would say his likely outcome is going to be where he has some years that with everything goes right, he's top five, maybe two or three times over a 15 year career. Um, and then everything else is probably more in the eight to 10 with a couple of years outside of that, 
as well maybe three or four years outside of it three to four years inside of it um and then the rest of it in that in that range um and i i think that part of it is that we have to understand is that when you look at trevor lawrence's game i mean he was closer to a matthew stafford type of player um the difference being that stafford actually played in a pro style set and had a lot more pro style concepts in his game whereas lawrence was playing much more in a you know, in a spread offense with a lot of RPOs and a lot of easy throws, a lot of misdirection stuff, but you would see flashes of the high-end physical talent. The film guys loved his high-end physical talent and saw how that could translate to a pro game where he'd make those special throws that that could kind of, um, you know, paint his way out of corners. Um, that def- defenses would have forced him to do, you know, he could break the scheme in essence. And he does that. He's doing that all year this year. I've seen lots of plays where he's done well with that. And whether they've been completed or not, he's put the, them in position to make positive plays. But at the same time, he doesn't have, he's not quite, I don't think he's ever going to be at a Mahomes level or at, you know, or he doesn't have Lamar Jackson's physical skills um, and he doesn't have Mahomes' conceptual skills. Um, so I think he's always going to be just outside that tier unless his offensive line is fantastic and he and they get another player who's what when people look at Calvin Ridley and they see um, Antonio Brown, um, they actually get a guy who is Antonio Brown-like. Um then they're gonna I think they'll be in a, in better shape Ridley's good he's just not great and I think that you know he has two really good receivers right now and a nice tight end he needs a if he got a Justin Jefferson um a, and a guy you know someone like that who could improvise with him and also be special or Devonte Adams for a year or two you know that would be that would be maybe a game changer for him statistically but he's not inherently that guy who, with or without, he's going to be top five. If I were to, to lay out like an Overton window, I'll, I'll throw some names out. Sure. I tend to think that like, obviously people are going to dis- disagree on stuff. I don't think there's a very reasonable case for Lawrence ahead of any of these names. Um, I think I would expect some people would have him ahead of some of them, but I, I tend to think that's more of a fringe position and rightly so. It might be right, but I... I so the Overton window for me is I don't think there's really a realistic way to put Lawrence ahead of Patrick Mahomes in Dynasty. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's a way to put him against jo- ahead of Josh Allen. Um, I would say no to Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert, although I think some people might argue um, Herbert. Um, I just, to me, I think Herbert has shown more and they're both young. And um, so I... I couldn't really put him above them. I couldn't put him above Lamar Jackson. I know a lot of people are worried about the play style and how it's going to age, but we've really seen no signs, nothing to this point that would cause us concern, I don't think. Uh, and then I would not put him ahead of Jalen Hurts just because of the rushing value. I, I But I think it, I could see somebody saying, like, I'm more confident that Trevor Lawrence will be an eight-year starter for me than I am that Jalen Hurts will be an eight-year starter for me. So for me, that's the Overton window is there's one, two, three, four, five guys that I just think I can't really see any real argument for Lawrence over. And then one guy where I would not personally have him over. I would imagine most people wouldn't have him over, but I would at least entertain an argument in favor of Lawrence. 
Um, so that was, what did I say, six? So I could see him as high as quarterback seven. I think it's a lot more interesting when you get into Lawrence versus Tua, Lawrence versus um, Anthony Richardson, CJ Stroud, uh, Lawrence versus um, maybe Purdy. Um, yeah. And then I think after those guys, so how many people is that? That was one, two, three, four guys. So I could see Lawrence as high as seven, and I could see him as low as maybe 11 or 12. Um, and if I were like the opinion police, I would say anything between seven and 12, I'm not even gonna argue with you. I might disagree, but it's just not even worth arguing. The, the, the disagreement is so small that I don't even care. Um, do you think that's fair? Or what would be your like acceptable yeah. window for ranking Trevor Lawrence? I think it's, I completely agree. Like my latest dynasty rankings that I put out and you know, this earlier this week in win now rankings, um, which is really for the next two years, I have him seventh and I have, you know, in the second tier of top starter, not a, elite, you know, my elite quarterbacks are Mahomes, Allen, Jackson, and Hertz. Um, and then, and then after that, I have Herbert, Tungavailoa, Burrow, and Lawrence. And I wish, and to be honest, um, if I saw, I, I've lowered Burrow only because I wondered how healthy he was. And then when I saw how healthy he was literally the afternoon after I posted these rankings, um, I probably would have Burrow um, above Herbert um, and in in the gold tier for, for, for that. I would keep him there. Um, so I probably overreacted a little bit on that end of it. Um, and then in terms of, you know, long build where I'm looking at like 25 to 27 as my window of competition, you know, he's eighth and I have Mahomes, Allen, Jackson, Hertz, and Burrow all in that gold tier as my top five guys. And then beyond that, it's Tungavailoa and Lawrence. And then I have Herbert and Richardson just after them with fields and golf rounding out that um that top starter tier and they're all quarter they're all players that are in my top 50 picks other than golf um you know they're all guys that I actually they're all players that I would say if I'm building long and I need and it's a one quarterback league they're all guys that I would cons I would consider any of these players in my top 30 picks as someone that I feel like I could have as an anchor for my team, you know? So, so yeah, I'm, I'm in total agreement with that, um, that idea of Lawrence and in that way and where it gets interesting is tongue Vailoa and Herbert. Cause I have Lawrence 16th, Herbert 17th and Richardson's 27th. And if Richardson didn't have an injury and have a, and have more injuries, he might've been higher up than those guys but i want to see him you know last more than a few games i guess before you know and see how see what's going on and have a little bit of time there and i can kind of afford to bake him in a little bit lower and i think too the herbert versus lawrence comparison is interesting because i mentioned you know i looked at starts 18 through 42 herbert had that amazing rookie season Lawrence had that awful rookie season. Starts 18 to 42, Herbert is 17th and Lawrence is 19th in adjusted net yards per attempt. So, I mean, Herbert has a little bit better um, counting stats, but in terms of, because uh, he has, yeah, he has about 150 more pass attempts. 
Um, but in terms of like, quote unquote, efficiency and level of play, like their stat that, you know, the yards per completion, their completion percentage, their success rate, like they're all super, super, super close. Um, and I feel like there's a little bit of discourse on Herbert, and but I feel like people do a lot more hand-wringing about Lawrence than they do about Herbert. They do. And I think it's, it's just that baked in narrative of like, Herbert surprised everybody because he was... You know, he looked like a great prospect and then dipped down in the eyes of people who were evaluating him. Um, and then he performed better than expected um, early on. And then when you look at Lawrence, everyone had sky high, unrealistic expectations, best prospect since Andrew Luck, you know, and people, you know, hand wrung about luck too in that regard. So it's a, you know, I don't know. I mean, you, it's easier it's easier to look at a player who's it's easier to come in on a player and say he's he's a way better prospect than people are saying than to come in and say he's the best prospect that you've ever seen and you know and then live up to it so yeah well i don't know i think this show lives up to its hype though i don't know if we get a ton of hype but, you know, we'll hype it up because, you know, you can find the great Adam Harstead at Football Guys and at Adam Harstead on Twitter. Does fantastic work, as you can see today. You know, you're going to be a better player listening to what, you know, Adam shares with us, uh, you know, on a weekly basis. I'm Matt Waldman. I'm along for the ride. You can find me at Matt Waldman um, on Twitter and, of course, you know, at Football Guys. I've got a replacements article coming out. Hopefully we'll help you find someone if you're in desperate need to help you win a start this week. So uh, thanks again. And you can tune in to us on wherever you download podcasts at Matt Waldman's RSP cast. <laughs>